Police One Academy is leading the way in high-quality, affordable training for officers nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 1,000 HD videos and 175 full-length courses in a robust learning management system. Training is certified or accepted for training credit in 35 states. Join the industry's most officer-friendly learning platform with more than 60,000 subscribers. To schedule a free demo, go to policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Jim, we're here, as you may hear in the background, with the murmur of the crowd at IACP 2016 in San Diego, California. We're talking with police leaders from across the country and perhaps across the globe about issues related to the use of force, about issues related to what police leaders are um, struggling with and staying up at night, right? Right, absolutely. So we're going to start uh, collecting some folks here to uh, join us. Uh, in the meanwhile, enjoy this fantastic interim music. Jim, we're back here on the floor at IACP 2016 in San Diego. We have John King, uh, who is uh, Chief of Police of Provo, Utah. John, I had the honor and the privilege to attend a seminar session uh, you presented uh, with some colleagues from Utah, from Salt Lake City, uh, and some of your Citizens Advisory Board. That was on Saturday. and. Um, I, I was truly impressed. I wrote a great article about what you guys are doing. Uh, maybe you want to explain to uh, some of the folks listening to the Policing Matters podcast uh, what you guys have done with regard to uh, engaging your community via the Citizens Advisory Board. Yeah, we formed a Citizen Advisory Board so we could give a group of people at what we think best represents the city and quite candidly some of the people that had concerns about us uh, to have a voice uh, directly in uh, to me and to the senior commanders and, and can compliment on, uh, you know, comment and, and go through some training and policy. And uh, also what we learned after we developed trust for a couple months together is that the community has a skill set that we could use to assist the police department. So it wasn't just us assisting them. So, Chief, any any problems getting through uh, different segments? I know you have a uh, pretty diverse uh, community there. Anybody um, reluctant to, to be so forthcoming with trust? Well, in the beginning, uh, we had a we had to build a trust, and so what happened initially, uh, especially with members of our minority community, uh, particularly our African American community, uh, the people I invited to the panel, actually the people that I went back and had complained about the, the per- performance of the Provo Police in the past. And I invited him in for a private meeting, and then I said, hey, I have the Citizens Advisory Board, and uh, would you like to participate? And so the board is consists of about 25 people, uh, about 15 show up on a regular basis, and it's the usual community activists you would expect, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, sure. the school board. But what I'm really proud of is we have half of them are people who initially complained about the police, and now their partners working on solutions. That's great, and I think it's really important. In San Francisco, we had community advisory boards, and uh, initially some people thought it was going to be friends of the police. And tell us how important it is to have the critics on board so that they can bring things up that uh, you might not be so um, welcoming to hear, but you really need to hear it. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been around the block a bit, a little gray hair here here at the podcast, but the uh, you know we try to be open-minded, but we still have 
our police paradigm, no matter how open we try to be. And it's good to give the people who did not grow up in policing, did not have an understanding of it, a voice to challenge us and ask us questions. And then we have the opportunity to explain it to them, to show it to them. If it still doesn't make sense to them, one of two things. Either we didn't articulate it well enough or demonstrate it, we didn't paint the picture, or we really have to reevaluate what we're doing. Because if it doesn't make sense to a common American, and we're doing something wrong. You know, I'm, I was reminded as I sat in the seminar session uh, the other day about uh, Lincoln's team of rivals. And there's a story of Lincoln, and it's probably folklore, but it goes something like this. He has his first cabinet meeting, and he says, we're going to have a vote in this meeting. Um, you have had no time to do any research. You have no time to do any preparation, but we're going to all vote on whether or not we're going to have ham or turkey for supper. And everyone votes, and it comes down, and the vote shows that it's going to be ham. And Lincoln says, thank you for your input. We're going to have turkey. <laughs> and it was interesting to me when you said, you know, that the chief of police, you know, has kind of, has the final say at the meeting, and, and it, it, it you, you are able to accept the input of the community, accept their expertise. You know, you have a chemistry teacher, a chemistry professor, a PhD, and he's helping you figure out ways to improve your teaching in, at, at the academy and in the in-service in level. And, you know, you can, you can hear that advice. And it, as you said at the seminar, you were skeptical at first, but you looked at it and said, you know what? That actually may help us. Right. And I think it helps us not only that it will help us be better police officers, but it helps that relationship building trust with the community where when people hear about that they go okay they're really not just doing the same old same old things they're trying to be open-minded and you bring up a good point Doug um, I let them know right away that uh, you know I'm, I'm the eye of the final say because I have the responsibility but it's important that you don't shut them down all the time sure let them have the voice and then try to find good that you can actually implement to give them some credit for their participation. Mm -hmm. And can, can I, Chief, if we all, we have a culture of maybe our command people not telling us ground truth, right? So can you give me an example of something that you heard at a community that was completely surprising that, that you'd never heard from your own people, but that it comes out at a community meeting and you were completely unaware of it? Well, most of it, is about the perception of um, our minority members. Um, I'm a white guy, I've been white my whole life. I try and be sympathetic, I try and be culturally aware, but I've never been a young black male in America mm -hmm. and never had been a young black male driving and have lights go up behind them. Mm. All of us, even if we're in a police field, when a police car shows up behind us, we always pay attention. Sure. But it's interesting to hear especially in these times, the level of concern and fear that uh, good Americans who happen to be people of color have a little fear of the police. And, and we can ignore that or we can go, wow, we have to aggressively do better on that. And that's our burden to do that. So mm -hmm. we're, we're the government, it's our responsibility. Sure. Well, Chief, I, I hold you up as an example of how to do it right. You guys have done it right in Provo. I'm delighted to have had the opportunity to listen to your seminar session and to share some time with you here on the Policing uh, Matters podcast. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the, the job that Police One does for police officers uh, throughout the country. You guys have a, a great uh, circle of influence, and you use that very well. It, as I, I mentioned before, uh, especially your writing, Doug, it's very balanced, and it you know, we, we know we do some things right, but we know we have room for improvement. And, and that, I think you highlight that with your Police One articles. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Chief. Good talking to you guys. Great to meet you.
we're back, Jim, here on the floor of ISCP 2016 in San Diego. We have Kevin Cashman um, here at the booth. Kevin, um, we were talking a little before we lit the mics up, uh, a little about de-policing and um, kind of what's going on in America. What's keeping some officers, um, or keeping some police leaders, I should say, awake at night is how their officers are pulling back from proactive policing. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I think it's a, a, a big threat uh, to you know effective policing in the country. Uh, one of the things I know, I became a police officer in 1981 and I did 31 years and we were trained two things at that time. One was uh, self-initiated police work and the other was officer safety. Now you can teach people officer safety and you can practice it, but as far as self-initiated police work, that's really a strength of your organization because you're not waiting for the call for service, you're not waiting for something to go bad and go react to it. You're getting out there ahead of the problem and hoping uh, things don't escalate from there. Uh, the classic cases, you know, we were trained when you see people, you know, in a dice game behind a high crime uh, housing development. That's something we were trained routinely to get out of the car and engage the individuals and not always cite them, but certainly break up the game because things can escalate quickly in a situation like that. I know. Uh, I think it was back in um, Baltimore, there was a couple of homicides related to that recently. I don't know that police officers, if they fear the lack of support out there, are going to be out doing proactive police work, but because at the same time, they could be accused of harassing the community. There's a fine line there. I mean, it's a low-grade infraction, misdemeanor at best, and um, it's not routinely enforced. So, But years ago, it was enforced, and I think that prevented things from escalating. Uh, but you never know how many crimes you prevent by taking that kind of proactive um, police work um, and I think some it, it is possible some agencies and officers are going to be pulling back if they don't perceive the support for when they do work like that. Jim you and I have discussed in the past right uh, the notion that um, zero tolerance um, is really is, it, it causes problems for police officers it causes problems for police leaders um, the notion that you have the, the um, discretion as a police officer on the street to intervene or to not right I mean what do you what do you bring to uh, when you when you teach your students at the university what do you talk about well when we talk about uh, zero tolerance policing I, I actually um, caution students and and during my law enforcement uh, days, in operations, we, we shied away from zero tolerance because that really meant that if you were really going to do zero tolerance, everyone got swept up in the net. So you really could, could make some adversaries within a community who would otherwise support you. But what Kevin's uh, talking about, retired uh, Deputy Chief uh, Kevin Cashman talks about uh, low-level crime like a dice game. Yeah, it's a crime. It's on the books. So does it lead to further violence? Yeah, I mean, we've had some uh, correlation between uh, gambling, low-level drug dealing that leads up to extreme violence, including homicide. And, and when you talk about urban cities like Detroit and Baltimore and um, St. Louis and, and Chicago with 500 plus homicides already, uh, you're talking about these low-level uh, crimes that to you or me might, might seem to be a nuisance crime, but uh, we're talking about money and competition and disrespect and dishonor, and these guys, uh, it's, no, it's no longer a fist fight, it's no longer resolved by a fist fight, it's a shootout and somebody dies. Exactly, and the other thing frustrating for the officers out there is when they're kind of sent in the field to do enforcement, and I couldn't agree with Jim Moore, zero tolerance is not the type of operation anybody should be doing uh, at any time. You need to have that discretion built in and training to go up with that and ethics as well. Um, but 
things do escalate quickly on the street and you need to be proactive in your approach to uh, how things are, are enforced. Um, they need to be enforced consistently and fairly. But the other challenging thing is a lot of times the police officers are going into certain communities to enforce certain things at the request of elected leaders, whether it be community leaders, supervisors. Or the community itself. The community itself, yep. the district attorney. A lot of times they're responsive to community complaints, but then they go out and do exactly what's asked of them, and there's accusations of selective enforcement when they were told to go into the area and enforce certain rules. Right. I mean, in New York City, when we had the, the incident you know, with the selling of the Lucy's that's that was mandated by you know the, the elected officials that is absolutely and correct so how does the police leader then um, how, how can they support better support their cops well I think specific direction obviously as much training as possible including ethics training is huge um, I think the other thing is they, they need to give written orders when they're going into op to do specific operations and tell them exactly what the expectations are they need to have uh, a lot of frontline supervision, a lot of experience, um, and uh, and just you know keep everything uh, very um, measured, so to speak. Yeah, Kevin, thank you very much for all of your insight, and thank you for everything you do. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks, it. Kevin. Jim, we're back, and uh, there's a television program on Netflix I understand that you're an avid fan of. So tell me about it. Oh, absolutely. Narcos in its second season is uh, a great uh, recreation of uh, uh, DEA agents uh, in pursuit of the narcos, the, the heavy narcotics dealers from uh, Colombia and South America, and we're so fortunate here today to have with us uh, former um, special agents in charge of the DEA, uh, legendary Javier Pena, legendary Steve Murphy in the flesh, not the actors, and uh, so great to have you guys here. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, guys. And you guys are, uh, you're uh, talking a little bit, you're at a booth here at the uh, IACP, and you're talking about um, your website, www.com deannarcos.com, D-E-A-N-A-R-C-O-S.com. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, what we've done is uh, the, the story about Pablo Escobar has become so popular because of the show on Netflix that uh, a lot of people are asking us, you know, could we tell the true story? So we were doing it already. Javier put a presentation together back when we were still on the job, but now it's actually developed into a business because of the show. So it gives us an opportunity to travel around the world. We still stay engaged with law enforcement. We're still able to get that message out there about how dangerous drugs are. But it's not only law enforcement. We're addressing conferences now, corporate events, the colleges and universities. It's, it's just amazing how this whole thing has developed. Sure. Well, the national trend is, has been, uh, at least on the political side, to say that the war on drugs is uh, a failure and it's over in a lot of people's eyes. Uh, tell us a, bit, a little bit about how dangerous it is still for law you enforcement. You know what, Jim? Yeah, right now, as you know, we're seeing the, the heroin epidemic uh, killing a lot of people. We're seeing that, you know, one of my pet peeves is that synthetic marijuana 
kids are smoking it, they're selling it, saying, you know, it's legal. That is stuff is dangerous. We're seeing a lot of the kids end up in hospital rooms, uh, dying. Uh, there's nothing safe about that synthetic stuff that out there, that's out there right now. And, and again, the, the heroin, the meth, I mean, we all know how addictive it is. Yeah, and we've seen, too, uh, nas nationally, uh, efforts, you know, come in November, we're going to have a couple more ballot initiatives to legalize marijuana in certain places. Uh, you know, what are you guys' feelings on how law enforcement at a local and state level can can deal with that you know with you know I mean, obviously it's still a, a federally a, a, a controlled substance so you know the you know the disparity between those two things and how do, how do cops deal with that you know potential legalization you know and that's one of the downsides of this whole legalization process you know just look at history the reason we study history is so we learn from mistakes with the, the ideal being that we don't repeat our mistakes right yeah. so legalization has been tried in multiple different countries with various types of drugs primarily marijuana but other drugs as well and it hasn't worked in a single country yet so i'm not sure why is it we think as americans we can do better than the rest of the world it's ridiculous to think that and also the marijuana is you know regardless of what you think about it it's a gateway drug now is that dea's job to, to go arrest the smoke you know, the users of weed? Absolutely not. But it is the job of the local police officers. So they have to, they're mandated by their chiefs and their legislators, state legislatures, to enforce the laws that are enacted. Well, as we all know, federal law supersedes state law, which creates a conflict in law enforcement. Depends on which political party is sitting in Washington as to how much pressure you get to enforce those laws. But it puts the uniform officer in a horrible position because they want all they want to do is their job. They're out there to protect the public, to serve the public. You know, you think about that title, public servant. That's a badge of honor. That means that those officers are given their lives to protect their fellow men, not themselves. But for our legislators, legislators to put us in a position like that is horrible. No worse job right now in the United States or more dangerous job than a uniformed police officer in the United States. Sure. And if I could add, the THC right now in the marijuana, that's like in the, in the mid-20s. You know, back then, it used to be 2 3%, very weak. Now, because of all the hydroponics, all the chemicals, it's it's very, like I said, uh, one joint. Uh, it's uh, not the marijuana, you know, of uh, yesterday. Sure. And we've, and we've had people in Colorado, for example, um, consuming the edible, you know, product, yeah, right? Yeah, right? Going literally crazy. And, and one guy who I believe assaulted his, his wife and jumped out a window and committed suicide right, in Colorado. Right. So and, and yeah, well, when people say that marijuana is not a dangerous drug, they're just patently wrong. You're absolutely right. Exactly. You know, and, and I mean, just think about it. So this is something you never hear him talk about. When you smoke marijuana, you're ingesting smoke into your lungs, you're inhaling that smoke, which leads to respiratory disease. So when you choose to smoke marijuana repeatedly, are you giving up your responsibilities to society? So now are all of us people that work, you know, 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week like most cops do, are we responsible for taking care of you because you made an idiotic decision to smoke weed and, and destroy your body sure so you can tell us a little bit of a hot topic with us no absolutely and for good reason you bring up two really good points one the thc content especially in edibles is really hard to to control but also like like you said steve about the all the countries that try to legalize it and, and i teach at the university the students seem to think that uh, Amsterdam was a great success, but mm -hmm. I know you know that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I know you know that the, the gang activity and the ancillary drugs and problems that came with it uh, have really made a, a disaster for that region. You know, and, and one thing that we bring out, because when we do our presentations, we always have a Q&A at the end. 
So a lot of places, especially universities, the question we get is, what are our thoughts on legalization? Well, my question back is, what do you think my position is? Do you think I'm in favor of it? Of course, then we, it gives us an opportunity to go into it. Yeah. But um, uh, it's, it's just amazing that anybody, so I use this parallel. When I was a young man, I tried beer. And I hated the taste of it, but the peer pressure, I tried it. Well, then that led to tasting wine, and I didn't like that either. And then you, it tastes, you know, it leads to liquor. So each is like a gateway to the next level. Sure. And that's exactly what marijuana is. It's a gateway drug to get you to try the next level. Now, people are going to say, no, I just want to try it to see what it's like. Okay, you tried it. Are you going to continue to smoke it? Now, on the other hand, my, my oldest son is an orthopedic surgeon. And so he's done research, medical, he's done research for me to find out is marijuana truly a pain controlling drug and he cannot find a single certified article saying yes it is but my very nice position is if it psychologically gives you a reduction in pain we don't care that's not what DEA's responsibility is mm -hmm. yeah. but the truth is the absolute truth is it's not a pain reduction chemical drug cigarette whatever you want to call it Hmm. Javier, Steve, give us once again um, your website and how people can get a hold of you for additional information. Go to uh, www.deanarcos.com. That's D-E-A-N-A-R-C-O-S.com. Gentlemen, thank you for everything okay. you guys do. Thank Thanks you guys. a lot. Uh, Appreciate okay. it. Thank and you. we'll be back in a few more minutes. Okay. Enjoy this Thanks. interim music. Jim, we're back here on the floor of ICP 2016 in San Diego, and uh, we're joined by Chief Brandon Zudema uh, of the uh, Garner, North Carolina Police Department. And uh, once again, I had had uh, the opportunity to sit in a seminar session that you presented with your lieutenant, uh, Clayton, I think, is Lieutenant Clayton, um, on how you guys, as a relatively small department, 65,000 65 sworn in a town of about 28,000 population, how you've um, worked towards enacting the uh, task force report on the uh, 21st century policing. And it was fascinating to me how you how you broke it down. Can you can you explain to some of the podcast listeners um, what it was you you spoke of yesterday? Sure. So what we wanted to do, and thank you for having me, by the way. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, and and again, want to use it as an opportunity to encourage others to engage with this report. Um, don't be afraid of it. Don't think it's something that's not manageable. It's very manageable. So the approach we took was to look at it, read it, try to absorb it, figure out sort of what it is first. And then once we had done that, we knew we could make use of it, um, even being a smaller department. Not the entire thing, but relevant parts. So with the six pillars, I was very fortunate to have six command staff members. So we assigned one piece, one pillar out to each of those six command staff members with the task of looking at what are we already doing that meets the requirements or the expectations of that, the tenets of that pillar, what um, are we doing that we need to do better, and what aren't we doing that we really need to engage with to make sure that we're staying a professional accredited police department going forward. Yeah. So, um, Jim, you and I have talked about the, you know, the report itself in the past, and some of the, the, the areas that may present a challenge for smaller or mid-sized agencies that a larger agency, such as, for example, San Francisco PD when you were there, would be considered a fairly large agency. Um, they, larger agencies would have maybe more resources uh, than some of the smaller ones? No, definitely you have pros and cons. I think, 
actually, it might be advantageous in a smaller department where uh, the chief can go around and, and push out the message and changes within a, the organization as opposed to, a, a, you know, a 500 or 2,000 person department where uh, you could really have some middle management people uh, change your message. So, Chief, how are you walking around and, and getting the message out to the, the ground level troops? And, and I agree with that. And I would also mention along with that, I think it's about the context of the environment you're working in. What is your relationship with the employees? You know, what is the level of trust? What is the experience in that regard? We're very fortunate. So I've been there seven years, have, a, I think, a good working relationship with our troops. Again, with a smaller department, mm -hmm. I can walk around the building. I can bump into cops. I can just know who they are, know who sure. their families are. That helps. Mm -hmm. So in that context, you know, walking around and trying to stay up to speed with the good, the bad, the otherwise of the police department and the community is a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. um, and then having a really good staff that sort of is also a voice for me and to me in terms of what's going on, what are we doing well, what are we not doing well. So again, the, the smaller agency is a huge advantage, I think, in terms of I can touch every employee in a week or two if I need to, to share a message from me. Sure. And, and so you're talking about really management by walking around, modeling behavior that you're desiring. Uh, do you or your command staff get out and, and get hands-on uh, in the field? We do. So um, we, we use a watch commander structure where we have one member of the command staff who's essentially on call for the, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened type sure. situation. Yeah. Um, I typically work at least one, sometimes two, uh, nine or ten hour weekend night shifts a month. Oh, um, a, because it lets me be in touch with our folks and understand some of the struggles they're having. And quite honestly, it's stress relief for me. I get out sure. from behind the desk. I get back out and just be a cop for a weekend and uh, get out and work a little bit. So, yeah. But again, that helps me to, to see what's going on and to communicate with them and let them know that I'm willing to try to walk semi in their shoes. Sure. I can't promise I do it all. They know there's certain things they got to help me with that I haven't done in a while. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And I think it makes a difference for our folks that they know they can trust me and, and rely on me not just from the office but behind them on sure. the street and that you know what the job's about because you, yes, you're sir. doing it and you know i i asked that uh, partly in response to a listener who said you know chiefs go to these conferences but they don't deal with the, us on the street and i think it's great to hear you walk the walk talk Thank the you. talk it, it, and it's 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 important. I mean, that's you got to make time for what's important, and that's important, and that's another reason that I really appreciate the, the size of our organization is that we are big enough to have certain things going on and develop people and, and that sort of thing. But, again, I can get out on a Friday night and just say, I'm coming to work, and let's go take calls together. Awesome. Yeah, and, and another, I think, benefit to that is that that's an extension of what you've talked to your folks about, about getting out of the car. You gave the example of uh, a fellow who, an officer, had uh, responded to a call in a park. Yeah, and then, and then I mean, that's pain, Community pain, right? gold, right? Yeah. I mean. And, and so you being out on the street, you actually have greater interface with the community as well because you're actually out there you know, responding to calls, you're taking you know, people's statements, you're, you're out there, and they can see you visibly as someone who is um, active engaged in the enforcement of the law in your town right yeah we try not to ask them to do anything that we wouldn't do as their leaders um, you know that's not always a hundred percent the case you know it's not always possible but as often as we can we're, we're trying to be out there and show them that we're, we're feeling their successes but also their struggles and, and trying to meet them somewhere in the middle so can you uh, briefly just give one or two of the examples that you had stated yesterday I'll, I'll start you off you know you guys have been actively involved in the police activities and athletic league uh, you guys have been involved in your your local churches you know you you actually have um, 
uh, merit-based you know, um, uh, uh, system that you uh, you know analyze or uh, evaluate your folks, and part of that merit system is 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 community involvement. Correct. Yeah. So that is one of the categories that they're scored on annually. So we have our Police Athletics and Activities League, or our Pale Group, which has been in existence since 2010. Uh, we're extremely proud of that. Um, we have programs now going in nine different schools in the community, uh, along with um, some interaction with our Parks and Rec Department. So we're just Sometimes it's just a matter of getting out and playing basketball with the kids and letting them see that, you know, cops are people that just have to have that uniform on. Sure. And then other times it's more structured in the schools where we're meeting them and giving them some positive reinforcement, mentoring, tutoring. And, you know, we're, we're trying to reach those kids that are right on the edge. Not always the kid that's just so far gone you don't know if you can rescue them, but mm -hmm. that kid that's teetering, that doesn't have a mom or dad or a great situation at home and maybe a little positive reinforcement will put them back on a path to success. So we're, we're really happy with that that um, that's been an outstanding opportunity and then again we're involved in a lot of civic organizations um, we're on boards of directors of different groups so we're interacting with adults and showing them that you know we're really people that care about the community we're not just doing a job mm -hmm. chief Zunima uh, I also want to make sure that we point out that in in my article uh, there is a link to your website yes, where sir. you have um, printed or, or posted rather I believe it's a 54 55 page document that, that really um, really is a, a terrific outline, a terrific model for agencies of all sizes to figure out how to really plug into the task force report on 21st century policing. And, and would you just give us the, the website for, for Garner PD? Sure. So you can go to our town's website, which is Garner, G-A-R-N-E-R-N-C.gov. And if you click on police services, the homepage of the police website uh, will have a link there to a PDF that you can download and look at. And you know, again, we encourage people to please do that. Steal good ideas. All cops know you, you steal good ideas. <laughs> that's I mean, that's right. how we've all gotten this far, right? <laughs> Don't reinvent the wheel. Now, that, that report is not going to work for anybody else in its totality, but pieces of it, I hope, would be very helpful for others to look at. Um, there are certainly other models out there. There's other ways to do it, but if this helps one other department, then I think we've done our job. Yeah, one of my big takeaways from your seminar session was that uh, not only will your report not fit all, you know, one size doesn't fit all with your with regard to your report, but even in fact the report itself from the task force. There are some things in the task force report that you're either a already doing, or you know, it won't always apply universally. The 59 uh, recommendations may not necessarily um, fit your particular Correct. department. So you saw that we talked about 17 recommendations going forward. When those 17, some of those are things we're just absolutely not doing yet and need to. But there's also things in there that we're already doing and need to do better. But we didn't address all 59, so that doesn't mean that there's, you know, do the math, the 42 that we're great at already, that's not the case. There's some that I think we're very good at already, but there's others that just aren't applicable to us, whether it's based on location, type of community, size of agency, um, work we do or don't do. It, you have to pick and choose, and again, I, I said that, I, I don't mean that to say pick and choose what you think you're good at, just pick and choose what's applicable. Don't be afraid to celebrate your successes, but also acknowledge areas that you could do better. Chief, thank you very much for thank everything you. you do. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Chief. Very nice to meet you. Appreciate it. And we're back here at IACP 2016. Uh, Jim Dudley, uh, Doug Wiley, uh, the Policing Matters podcast. We're with Frank Kitzero, who's Chief of Police for Jupiter Police Department in Jupiter, Florida. Um, Chief, you were talking with me a little earlier about uh, the need, you know, we have all of these police leaders uh, here at this conference, the need to help bring along uh, budding young police leaders and some of the things that you do to help to, uh, to mentor them along. 
Yeah, I, I think it's really important for us, you know, as a, as a leadership now to think about our future, and especially in the challenging times that we have. And, and a lot of times we focus on talking about programs. There's a lot of great programs out there. But when I teach future leaders, I talk to them about uh, having some guiding principles, some big goals around which to build your programs. Like, for example, we talk in particular about three areas that I think are very important for current and future leadership as we navigate through probably what are some of the most challenging times uh, in policing many, many decades. And the first of which is, as difficult as it is, we have to stay engaged with the media. And as tough as that is, you have to get out there, you have to make your point. If you're not staying engaged with the media, someone else is sending your message. So you have to do it. And there's ways to do it to be creative. Uh, you know, for example, I was talking about the fact that on my media distribution list, I have several hundred recipients. They're my key stakeholders in and around my community. So every time I send a press release out, I don't always send it. It's not just the media that gets it. It's all the key stakeholders. We leverage social media. You know, we do. We, we stay out in front. And I think that's really important. You've got to get your message out. So, Chief, how do you control the message among your your line officers, say at the scene of an incident when the media is right on scene. Is your policy for them to talk to the media? If so, do you have some guiding principles? Yeah, I'm a firm believer in uh, it's okay for them to talk to the media right there on the front line, especially nowadays because you know time time is everything now. Sure. In the older days, we could stand by, do a press release. So, uh, so the folks on the front line are empowered to give the basics of a call, the basics mm -hmm. of an event, mm -hmm. you know, the who, what, when, where, why, how. We teach them, we train them. We have some on the shifts that are uh, that are particularly experienced in that, and, uh, and we, we allow them to, to make those initial comments. And then we'll follow up with our public information officers in a little bit more detailed. And, you know, as I tell them, you know, I would rather us be out in front and be proactive and make a mistake in something we say sure. than to not be out there and be proactive for fear of making a mistake. Well, sure. And, and, and not, not talking is a mistake. It I mean, is. No comment no longer works. It doesn't work. But, but in the case of a, a major incident, say an officer involved shooting um, suspect uh, deceased, um, two schools of thought. One is get the message out with as much information as you can or hold off until you get the forensics, the evidence, the witness statements and ID and things like that. What, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I've listened to both sides of that, and I, I think you have to really be strategic on your message. So uh, from my perspective, what's wrong in the beginning with saying the basics? We responded here for report of. When we arrived, we found. Um, here is the process. Here's what's going to happen next. As a police chief, it's important for me to get out in front as well. So I have no problem with standing out in front and saying, here's what you can expect from us over the next six hours, over the next four hours. And we're going to have the state attorney come. We're going to have the Florida Department of Law Enforcement will be investigating. Uh, you know, and, and just keep them up to date on process. To me, if they see you and you're speaking and your agency is visible, you know, a lot of times uh, you don't have to worry about, in my opinion, making... Um, the, the big, big statements, you just got to be visible and you have to be out in front. So for the frontline guys, they can give the basic who, what, when, where, why, and how. I can assure you that, you know, as much as these folks love talking to the media, and you know how police, police officers sure. are, 
you know, they'll, they'll face a guy with a gun any day of the week rather than talk to the media. Right, right. right. Um, they're going to give the basics, and they're going to do what they're trained to do, and uh, and then believe me, they're going to step out of the way and then and then give us time to get there. Mm. And they're not waiting for a, a statement. It's like a, it's like when um, an officer's involved in shooting. And what do we want to do? We want to release that officer's name, right? Well, for us, our plan is we're not just going to release an officer's name. Before I release your name, I'm coming to your house. I want to see, I want you to give me pictures of when you adopted your first puppy, when you were graduated from high school, when you, you know, had your first child, when you rode a bike, whatever it is that makes you human. So rather than showing a picture of just a police officer in a uniform instead of a flag, I'm not just going to tell you the officer's name, I'm going to introduce you to that officer. You can make your decisions after that. And on our social media pages, I'm going to be flooding those pages with pictures of this officer who's a human being. Sure. So you were saying about um, that's so the, being in front of the media is the first tenant. The second tenant, of course, you were saying earlier was well. The second tenant of three that I, I think really believe in is making sure that um, we're doing the things to keep our business and our profession up to date. For example, you know, I use Police One as a as an example. If all of a sudden your customer needs changed, the dynamics of the uh, environment changed, um, the expectations changed, and you didn't change, what would happen to your business? Well, you're left behind. You're left behind. Yeah. So it's no different in law enforcement. So we, we have to be able to say, okay, we can build on successes. We have to find new ways to do business, fair and impartial policing, um, organizational culture. Uh, do we use use of force or do we respond to aggression? Yeah, I mean, just, just the things that we're teaching people along the way. And it becomes part of the communication process, becomes part of the culture, and it becomes part of uh, our dialogue with the communities. I think it's important to be able to build on the successes, but we have to uh, be in a position to say, look, we got to find new ways to do things. And your third tenant? And my third tenant is invest in your future. Um, you know, we use asset forfeiture funding to build a criminal justice academy at the high school. We have a juvenile first offender program. We, have, we sponsor law enforcement explorers. In our um, Hispanic communities, we, we use asset forfeiture to hold soccer tournaments. Yeah, and we provide, uh, we can use leverage some money to provide scholarships for kids. We work with the different community um, partners out there. And, and the reason we do that is because we're investing in our future. Those middle schoolers and those high schoolers, they're, they're the ones that are going to be the new mayors, police chiefs. You know, we didn't get here by accident. We like to say, think that we did. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is when we went all went through the budget crisis, what did we do? We backed out. We said we're going to do investigations, respond to calls. We disengaged. And so we're as much, you know, uh, a part of the a problem and part of the solution as anyone. These, you have to reach out and get these young folks. So I think by staying engaged with the media, by finding new and better ways to do business, and to, st to build the future through our youth, um, I think those are three key strategies that you can build lots of programs around and there are many successful programs around the country. Chief, thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank Thanks, you. Chief. Thank you very Good much. Good talking to you. And we're back here with the Police 
one podcast at IACP 2016. Uh, we have Dan Harris, uh, Chief Patrol Agent, United States Border Patrol, uh, here talking about uh, some of the new things that you're doing with the Border Patrol in terms of uh, your training unit. Yes, sir. I just took over the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, which is located in southeastern New Mexico, little town of Artesia, New Mexico, as part of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And so what we've done there, we've been working the last couple of years with all of the challenges that are facing the law enforcement profession and redoing how we do our basic training academy. And so we've gone to the longest academy ever, 117 days for the Border Patrol Basic Academy. We've brought our Spanish language training back in, but, but we've looked at all of the recommendations from PERF, from our civil rights partners, what we call non-government organizations and the federal government NGOs. I just spent last week hosting some of them as they look at those recommendations that they've over the last couple years they have told us. But the big thing for us that is how we respond to rockings, one of the most violent assault type activities that happen to Border Patrol agents in the field and, and helping those agents address their tactics, how they use cover, how they use their backup, their partners, how they use the less lethal devices that they have at their disposal and how they use de-escalation and that type of training as they approach those violent encounters, whether they're enforcing narcotics violations or even human smuggling along the southern borders primarily where, where we face that. And when you graduate from Border Patrol Academy, your first assignment is between California and South Texas. But we've, we have thousands and thousands of assaults against Border Patrol agents you know, over the last 10 years. I think it's around 8,000 or so on those numbers, but, but we're doing a lot, everything that we can so that the agents, the trainees, when they come out of that academy and they graduate, they're going to get it right when they hit the field. Because when they get it wrong, somebody's going to die, whether it's an adversary or it's one of them, and we don't want that to happen. You know, the last thing we ever want is the loss of life. And so we're, we're doing everything we can to put that training academy into state-of-the-art, performance-based, with, uh, with out of the classroom and into safe scenarios and a safe environment where they can make those mistakes there. Great. Any, Chief, do you see any trends uh, that we should be looking for either across the southern border or the northern border? What, what are you seeing um, as far as uh, weapons or drugs or things like that that our, our officers should be looking for? So the big thing that we're really concentrating on is those pre-assaultive indicators. We haven't always looked at those when it comes to it. So narcotics is always one of our biggest threats in, to the, on the southern border. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier when we were talking the opiates and and, and that is a, is a grave concern for us. So methamphetamine, those are seizures that we're making on the southern border are increased threefold, just drastic increases in what we're seeing there. We still face violent counters over marijuana smuggling. And, and so you name it with narcotic smuggling, that's one of our biggest threats that we have on the southern border. But as, as we get better and better at protecting that border, we, we see violence go up. We see the smugglers get desperate. And, and so we're really working hard for those agents to know and be able to recognize those pre-assaultive indicators and be able to get ahead of the situation, to get get ahead of it, be it see it coming so they can have that time for that appropriate reaction. Sure, so you see the ground level uh, violence that uh, what, what a lot of people would uh, consider a, a victimless crime or a, a drug crimes that, that don't include violence. You've seen the violence. Absolutely, it's, a, it's dangerous to, you know, we work daily with the country of Mexico and to try to address those threats even before they get to the United States. But, but the violence is still there and, it, and it's deadly. 
So, Chief, one of the things that I wonder about, because of how violent it is and, one of, and, and, and how difficult the job is and seeing some of the really the atrocities of human smuggling and things like that, um, how, is, how is morale addressed in the agency? How are you keeping your, keeping your men and women out there on, on patrol um, positive and engaged in, 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 in the agency and in the work? So we're working on doing a better job of investing in them. So we have one of my fellow chiefs, there are 22 of us that are chief patrol agents in the United States Border Patrol with the 21,000 staff. When we're fully staffed, we have just over 21,000. By the way, we are hiring right now. And so you can find that out there on USA Jobs. But, you know, we're, we've got a resiliency task force led by a chief named Rudy Karish out of the Del Rio sector. And he's been in Washington, D.C., putting together a full-time team. So um, we've suffered from suicides. We've yes. suffered from from trauma, the traumatic incidents that our employees had to deal with. And so we're we're taking a hands-on approach. We've always had a, a great peer support team, chaplaincy agent teams, but but we're just even expanding that even more. And we're taking all of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, because it's not just us in the Border Patrol that have suffered with it, but those officers at the ports of entry are suffering, the men and women there are suffering the same way. And so uh, we're just really turning all of that upside down to how do, how do we invest in those employees with resiliency and 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 invest in their lives and help raise that morale. We've we've had some challenging times in the Border Patrol the last few years and and so we're 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 taking it head on. Well thank you for everything that you guys are doing on well, our borders, you, protecting our country. Thank you so much Chief. Well, I sure appreciate, appreciate you stopping it. by Policing Matters, the Police One Podcast. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you, you too. We're back here at IACP 2016, San Diego. Um, Jim, uh, it was a really great afternoon spent here at the Police One booth. Really good energy. And again, to the, the officer, the line officer who says, hey, you know, my chief goes to these conferences. Hey, I'm telling you, I think it's really important for them to see the latest in technology. They hear from uh, government um, speakers. They hear about the latest in use of force. Uh, the issues from FBI, DOJ, DEA, uh, really valuable resources they could take back to their agencies. You know, I think one of the things that I've learned over the course of the last um, seven or eight years I've been coming to IACP is not only do uh, law enforcement leaders come here to learn in the seminar sessions and come here to learn on the expo floor, but we've just been had, having these conversations with some of the, uh, the leaders that we've interviewed here on the podcast, these side conversations that take place, these um, hallway conversations that take place, the networking events, there's, there are opportunities to learn and, and take ideas from one agency and apply them to another, right? Absolutely. And you, and you hear the, the common problems that you're having in big cities and small towns. I mean, we talked to several chiefs uh, today and last night that are from jurisdictions as small as uh, 7,000. I talked to a chief uh, from Georgia last night uh, to to populations of several hundred thousands. So uh, you're, we're not on islands. We're all sharing the, the same uh, problems. Uh, 21st century policing uh, is, is the real issue uh, today. Uh, use of force is a real issue today. Uh, opiate overdoses are real issues that, that affect us across the nation. And we should be talking to each other and learning from each other. 
Yeah. So, uh, and on that note, uh, we want to have you, the uh, podcast listeners out there, um, give us topics that you'd like for us to uh, to cover in the future. Uh, we we definitely want to hear from you. So do please email us at policingmatters at policeone.com, and Jim and I will be happy to uh, take your email and uh, reply back and uh, begin the conversation online. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you soon. So long, everybody. Stay safe.